Hey everybody, this is Holden. I just wanted to drop in before we get into this next episode of The Hours to remind everyone to stay tuned until the end of the podcast as we announce the three winners of our Under the Silver Lake inspired cipher puzzle from the other week. We had a lot of fun creating this game, and we hope everybody who played had as much fun decoding this as we did. So uh, sending a big thank you to all of our participants. Um, just uh, stay tuned, and uh, here is our discussion of the hours. Welcome back to Unseen Supreme, the non-essential movie podcast. I'm Maddie. I'm Holden. And I am John. So this is episode four, The Hours. Last time, Holden took us through Under the Silver Lake, and John and I took a quiz, and I won, and I chose to watch The Hours. Hopefully you've watched it by now and um, are not in danger of any spoilers. Yeah, I don't think we've ever really mentioned that. We are going to be spoiling Everything we talk about. Mm-hmm. So just know that going in. We are not shying away from the nitty gritty details, y'all. So just know that people die. Virginia Woolf, she dies. Three different women. This life is what I've always wanted. I had an idea of our happiness. Each living a lie. I wish for your sake, Leonard, I could be happy in this quietness. Each putting someone else's life. Good morning, Mrs. Dalloway. First. That is what we do. That is what people do. They stay alive for each other. And we do before we before we begin talking about uh, the hours and maybe before we recommend you watch it. We just want to place a trigger warning for suicide and suicidal ideation. Um, so if that is a subject that you would rather not watch, totally okay. We also want to let you know that um, if you or someone you know is in a crisis, you can call 1-800-273-TALK. That is the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. And you can also text the crisis text line, text HELLO to 741-741. Please don't call the police. That should be clear by now. Oh boy. <laughs> It's, I mean, it's, it's true. Don't call the police. Call, call one of these numbers. Um, if you're deaf or hard of hearing, you can also call 1-800-799-4889. Heavy stuff. Heavy stuff. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about context act as we like to do. This movie was filmed in 2001 and came out in 2002. 2002 was a huge year for blockbuster series films such as Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers. Hail, hail. Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets. Uh, Spider-Man came out in 2002. The first one? Mm Mm-hmm. Not a fan. I haven't seen the uh, Tobey Maguire ones, I'll be honest. Yeah, you're not missing anything. I didn't think think so. I think they're really great. Uh, You know what else I didn't see? Star Wars 2, Attack of the Clones. Oh, definitely not missing anything. Mm. No, 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 no. The original trilogy I watched, then I watched one and I said, nope. And I did not watch two or three. You had more foresight than a lot of people in my second grade class were. Well, I watched them in 2012. Let's be clear. (laughs) Oh, I I knew. Yeah. uh, And also Men in Black 2 came out in 2002 and Die Another Day. Oh, gosh. Lots of lots of um, big series. But but not good ones. A lot of big movies, but none, none that were worth your time. As far as I can tell, 2002 was a bad year. 
Maybe maybe the two towers. The two towers was stellar. But out of that list, nothing I would rewatch. No. I Harry Potter is the only one that I've seen out of that list, I'll be honest. Moving on. Um <laughs> Yeah, I, I kind of looked into the year two thousand two because I was very young then, so I don't remember what was going on. And it was a lot of war. A lot of war, a lot of not very happy things happened that year. Is there so, cultural oh yeah, okay. I thought you that's sorry. That's the extent of my cultural context. Okay. Not a great year. My personal context, I watched this movie in twenty sixteen in my last year of college. It was in my LGBTQ plus film class, which was the only film class I took and it was awesome. I'm very glad I took it. My last year of college, two thousand three. My last year of college, 2017. So the year this movie came out, my last year of college. Oh. There's the gap, folks. <sighs> okay. Uh, no. Uh, yes, I love that film class. Uh, we watched it. I wouldn't say it has the most overt uh, LGBTQ themes, but it's definitely in there. Um, and I, I loved it. I loved it at the time for its performances. Obviously, amazing visuals, uh, the way it's shot. I love and also the themes. I think it touches on some really delicate themes and does it pretty well. Rather than read a synopsis, I decided to give y'all some taglines. Number one, we got three different women, each living a lie. Oh. Hmm. Um, another tagline gets better. The time to hide is over. The time to regret is gone. The time to live is now. Is that ripped from the movie? I like the first one better. Okay. Uh, and finally, we have three women and their search for happiness. Three women. Three women. Three women. <laughs> three women in their search for happiness. Yeah, I still like the first one better. I, th- I think maybe the, the third one is pretty accurate, but not, not great from like a flashy marketing standpoint. It's the more optimistic. So what did y'all think? Uh, how would you rate it? One to five. Uh, why, what are your general feelings about the movie? I think it was a lot to gi- digest. Maddie and I watched this yesterday, um, and she had immediately thoughts and talking points. Uh, I think John did as well. And I think I kind of sat back and had to digest a little bit, and I still feel like I'm digesting. I feel like a lot of stuff went over my head. I enjoyed it, and I enjoyed its storytelling perspective and its editing um, and how it told different stories um, succinctly one line but i don't know i think i have to talk about it more before i can give my overall feelings for it all right i thought this movie was fantastic i knew very little about it i knew that it existed because i um i've actually owned the philip glass score for i guess since the movie came out so 18 years ago Mm -hmm. uh, 10 minutes this movie i knew it was going to be really really good so yeah i i thought it was a great film i loved how it was written, I love how it was directed. The acting was absolutely superb. And I never felt like the jumping between the three storylines ever felt uh, like it got confusing. I thought it was really clever how they sort of brought these three stories together, sort of based around the central idea of this Virginia Woolf book. Yeah, uh, it is. The movie is based on a book that came out a few years before uh, called The Hours. And they're pretty similar. There were a few characters uh, missing from the movie that were in the novel. But other than that, I think it stayed pretty true to the book. Uh, what would you call it? Was it an adaptation of the of Virginia Woolf's Mrs. Dalloway or I don't, a repurposing? Or I wouldn't call it an adaptation since it, is, since it does reference 
Mrs. Dalloway so much. You know what I mean? Because it is obviously Mrs. Dalloway is such a big part of the story. You know, it goes from Virginia Woolf writing the book to another character reading the book to another character, um, you know, living the book. Right. So I wouldn't call it a, an adaptation. The writer of the hours was adapting the source material and sort of applying it to his own life and experiences. And so I think it, it's not a direct adaptation because it's not a movie based on the book, Mrs. Dalloway, but I think he probably is taking themes and he's taking characteristics of, of the book itself and then sort of applying it to his own life. Um, right. Perhaps a bit of his own story. Yeah. It's, it's the themes of Mrs. Dalloway, but in the modern age. If you were to search outside of the movie, if you were to like look deeper, that mm-hmm. would be the the source material you could go back and look at and then find how it how they coalesce. Yeah, the themes are very universal. I mean, we can go ahead and talk about Mrs. Dalloway. I wanted to maybe touch on the book and Virginia Woolf before we dive into Yeah, let's do that. Um everything else since that is the historically accurate part of the movie. So Virginia Woolf, most people probably know she's a famous modernist author. She was born in 1882, I believe. 1880s. Um, And she kind of pioneered the use of stream of consciousness writing, which is kind of what the novel and then the movie adaptation of the novel uh, do as well. We'll be talking a lot about her uh, mental health, unfortunately, even though there's so much else to talk about her. That's kind of, um, you know, the theme of the movie. Dearest, I feel certain that I'm going mad again. I feel we can't go through another of these terrible times. And I shan't recover this time. I begin to hear voices and can't concentrate. Yeah, so Virginia Woolf, um, known for being mad, quote unquote, uh, she had her first mental breakdown after her mom died when she was 13. Her father died uh, when she was 22, had her second mental breakdown. Between then, she had a lot of other people close to her die. So she experienced a lot of death from a very young age. Uh, she founded a press after she met her husband, Leonard. They had a printing press together. And Which obviously, we, see in the, we see in the movie. Yes, but it's funny. I actually read where that was inaccurate because Virginia always operated the press because he, I guess, had really unsteady hands. Huh. Anyway, fun fact. So yes, um, back then she was kind of diagnosed with some wishy-washy, we don't really know what it is, mental health madness um stuff but now psychiatrists think that she probably had bipolar disorder she suffered from you know very manic episodes and obviously was a very talented woman but she also had very um deep depressive episodes also relevant to the movie she did have affairs with women so she was was you know she did i think definitely before she was married and then maybe while she was married um don't quote me on that and then mrs dalloway uh, was her second novel, published in 1925, so a few years after that portion of the movie takes place. Um, in it, the main there's actually a main female character and a main male character, and obviously um, for the hours, the male protagonist was removed, but the main female character, Mrs. Dalloway, spends her day organizing a party while reminiscing about the past, basically, to break it down very simply, which, again, we see in the hours, and... Um, in Clarissa. Yes. Clarissa Vaughn, Meryl Streep's character. Clarissa Dalloway was the, is Mrs. Dalloway's first name in the book. Oh. Which is maybe, I suspect, why Richard calls, one of the reasons Richard calls the character Clarissa, Mrs. Dalloway. Right. In the movie. And yeah, the, the book features a female former love interest for the female protagonist, actually, 
and a male former love interest for the male protagonist. So those queer themes are definitely in the book as well. It also features strong themes of mental illness, including bipolar disorder. The main male character ends up committing suicide. Okay. Yeah. So, so I, ju- I just wanted to. That's essentially a template for this movie. Right. Or what would uh, the writer of the hours eventually would, in the novel that he wrote, that was the template for. Right. What he used to create his characters. Yeah. So knowing all of this, you know, obviously the book Mrs. Dalloway ties them all three characters, Virginia Woolf, Laura Brown, the 1950s housewife, and the modern, at that time, Meryl Streep, Clarissa. But I want to talk about, is there anything else that ties them together besides the book? So the the Laura and Clarissa storylines have a direct relationship, but it's relative to the Virginia Woolf because she's the writer of the book that uh, Laura was, is that the right name? Laura, Laura Brown. Yeah. Laura Brown is reading the book. Laura Brown is also Richard mother who is involved with Clarissa's storyline. So they have a direct relationship. The book is the thematic relationship that ties them all together. But how the movie sort of posits that relationship is as if Virginia Woolf is writing the future characters, right. which I found to be interesting. This felt a little bit like a stranger than fiction to me. Have you seen that movie? Yeah, but I don't really remember too much about it. Just in the fact that there's a, there's an overarching author that seems to be writing the story for someone else. Uh, that's living it. Some further comparisons are, are how the book sort of relates to these characters is that Laura is actually reading the book when she's going through her storyline. We can get into that a little bit later. Richard is her child who's seeing, you know, what the struggles that she's dealing with and then carries those into his adult life. Then meeting Clarissa, who I think I feel like becomes a surrogate mother for Richard mm-hmm. um, and just happens to have the first name Clarissa. She becomes his Clarissa Dalloway. Mrs. Dalloway, it's you. Yes, it's me. It's me. Come in. Richard, it's a beautiful morning. How about we let in a little more light? Is it still morning? Yes, it is. Have I died? (laughs) But they do have a a, a bond, a, a kind of a love that's deeper than a romantic love. And I think that that's, she becomes his caretaker. So she, in essence, takes the role of his mother once his mother leaves the family. They did bring you breakfast, didn't they? What a question, of course. Richard, you did eat it. Well, can you see it? Is it here? Is there any breakfast lying around? No, I don't see it. Well, then I must have eaten it, wasn't I? I suppose. Does it matter? Of course it matters. They did have a, they did have like an affair though. Romantic entanglement. But we don't see it. No, it's, it's, it's talked about and that's sort of, those are the memories that she's holding on to. She is lamenting her past and Richard is a big part of that past. Definitely. I also think that Richard is a big, a big part of that because as you were saying, his character is in two of the storylines. And, you know, I really think that he is the reason that Clarissa Vaughn, Meryl Streep's character, kind of takes on this Mrs. Dalloway role. You know, he gives her the name and she says somewhere in the middle of the movie, she says, you know, I was stuck with it from then on. I was stuck with the name Mrs. Dalloway. So it's almost like he puts that upon her, whether that was um, whether she was actually destined for that or not. And we do see how her life has been greatly affected by Richard and his presence in her life and his needs yeah 
you know, because she does clearly feel responsible for him and responsible for his wellness and his um, his happiness. And oh uh, yeah, and especially since he's this character at this point, when we meet him, he is clearly sick. Mm-hmm. We learn that he's dying, mm-hmm. um, or he's he may have a few good years left, but he is dying. So she she is essentially the one she's taking care of him. Yeah, she's the one who's also reminding him that like life is worth holding on to. Um, constantly trying to pull him back from his depression, which is probably caused by his illness. I'm, they allude to the fact that he's also a, a trying person despite the illness as well. Right. Which kind of is developed later when we meet his ex-boyfriend mm-hmm. and uh, meet some additional characters. But I do like that since it's all coming back to the book, his character is also a writer mm-hmm. and he has wrote what everyone keeps calling a challenging book. It's also the book that he's being award. He wins this award that Carruthers for, but, Anytime anyone talks about it, they talk about it as a challenging book. I actually tried to read Richard's novel. You did? Oh, I know. It's not easy. I know. It did take him 10 years to write. Maybe it just takes another 10 to read. I liked how they put that because I imagine that Mrs. Dalloway, when it came out in the 20s, dealing with you know depression, gay and lesbian relationships that was probably you know quite verboten at that time one of the first scenes with clarissa and richard i liked that he kept bringing up this notion that clarissa is doing all of this for herself and not for him who is this party for what do you mean who's it for what are you asking what are you trying to say i'm not trying to say anything Mm -hmm. i'm saying I think I'm only staying alive to satisfy you. What that scene made me think of was was how we kind of lie to ourselves and to others to either make ourselves feel like we're doing something good for someone else to make ourselves feel better or and and what the intention is behind that. Right. Richard has a lot of nuggets in that first um, scene he's in, but yeah, one one big one was, you know, saying that when he died, she would be free. Yeah. I mean, and specifically with the what Holden said he said, which was who is this part essentially what who is this party for? Right. Yeah, who's this party? So, for? as the movie progresses and we get to the end, we see that that's sort of what I feel to be one of the central themes of the movie. And it all comes back to me of the cake. So, yeah. Every character in this movie to me is baking a cake. Oh, look. Made a cake. I know. Didn't work. I thought it was going to work. I thought it would work better than that. (laughs) Oh, Laura, I don't understand why you find it so difficult. I don't know either. Anyone can make a cake. I know. Everyone can. It's ridiculously easy. (laughs) Like, I bet you didn't even grease the pan. I greased the pan. Julianne Moore's character literally makes a cake. She's Mm -hmm. making a cake for John C. Riley. It's his birthday. She messes up the first one, and it it, it starts a bit of a meltdown for her. She's obviously already living with something, but this was a catalyst to like let us know that she's dealing with some deeper issues. She messes up the first one, has a discussion with her son, where's like, we're making a cake to show daddy that we love him. And he says, will he not know if we don't make him a cake? And she says, yes. Right. Clarissa's character, she's throwing a party. So it's, it's another form of a cake, right? She wants this party to be beautiful and be perfect because she's celebrating the person that she thinks is perfect. Mm-hmm. Hi, Clarissa. How are you? <laughs> I'm having a party. My friend Richard's won the Carruthers. Wow, that's just terrific. If I knew what it was. It's a poetry prize. 
for our life's work. It's the most prestigious. For a poet, it's the best you can do. Oh, very good. So, what would you like? The lilies are perfect. What I what I thought was interesting was how it reflected their insides, not their literal insides, but the manifestations that were happening internally. So um, whether that's Laura messing up the first cake, that's another thing. But like Clarissa, I thought the, the thing that stuck out to me was Clarissa's scene when she's trying to even make the cake. There's all of this pressure that we feel in this scene where she's trying to make this stuff. Um, she's cracking the eggs and we're, it's just amping things up. It's like a ticking clock, which, you know, you hear some ticking clocks sometimes to kind of emphasize this suspense almost. But these eggs are representing this pressure that's inside of her because she's almost at her breaking point. And then she turns around to the sink and she turns the faucet on and it just shoots out. It's, you know, how air gets pressurized back up in your faucet or whatever. Um and that's her breaking. Physical. That's her. Yeah. That's her breaking point. Clarissa. Um, oh, I don't know what's happening. I'm sorry. I seem to be in some strange sort of mood. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's uh, it's very rude of me. Oh God, it's probably just nerves about the party. You know, bad hostess. <laughs> Clarissa, what's happening? <laughs> and it's it's showing how all of this is such a weight on someone's shoulders to have to hold this other person up and kind of almost not think about themselves. Yeah. And there's a lot going on in that scene in particular. That's mm-hmm. all the scenes that happen in the kitchens throughout the three storylines, I think are really, really probably some of my favorite. Yeah. And I think that those, they're the most telling scenes in, in this whole movie. So in that one in particular, she's also talking to, Richard's ex, mm-hmm. uh, played by uh, Jeff Daniels. Thank you. And it's a great scene. He's not there for very long, but a lot is sort of discovered about Clarissa's character in that moment too, where she's admiring him from actually having gotten away from Richard or like going and living his life, not living a life for somebody else. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think that that sort of cues us into that. She's lamenting that in herself. And then there's something that happens at the end of the movie, which solidifies it. I think you're courageous. Courageous? Why? To dare go visit. What I mean is to face the fact that we have lost those feelings forever. That theme is transferred to each kitchen scene. It's the expectation of doing the right or being correct or being right or being the perfect housewife. Exactly. Being everybody. Yeah. Being normal and everybody else. You can keep going just on this one topic alone for the entire movie. Forever. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, Virginia, actually, towards the end, when we get that big scene with her and Leonard at the train station, you know, she says, I have in my notes her exact lines, but, you know, she finally says towards the end of the movie, you know, why, why should I? um, Was it what Richard, was it what Richard said about obligation? Is that what it was? I was thinking that Virginia said something because she had so many good nuggets. She has so many good nuggets throughout the movie, but this was. You know, she's talking to Leonard and she's like, why should I pretend to be fine when I'm not, basically? Yeah. Um, you know, and she she was the first one that I noticed to actually say it. I think she was the living embodiment of that truth. Mm-hmm. It was just at the wrong time. And I think it was in the 20s. No, yeah. No one knew how to help her. Yeah. Maybe this sort of touches on what you're saying as well. But like, you know, when uh, Leonard catches up with her at the train station, she's he thinks she's running away. 
And we as the audience maybe are thinking that as well. When he gets her, he's like, we have to go home. You know, our cooks are cooking dinner for us. It's our obligation to eat. That's right. That's what it is. Virginia, we must go home now. Nellie's cooking dinner. She's already had a very difficult day. It's just our obligation to eat Nellie's dinner. There is no such obligation. No such obligation exists. Virginia, you have an obligation to your own sanity. I've endured this custody. Endured this imprisonment. Oh, Virginia. This idea of perfection or just normality is not, really, truly non-existent. Uh, there was a great line. I don't remember who said it. I think it might have been Laura. Because she's so confident, everyone thinks she's fine, but really she's not. Describing Mrs. Dalloway, yeah, mm-hmm. the character. And is, she reading, that, like, is she reading the book at that time? Laura's reading the book at yeah, that time? Yeah, Laura's reading the book. At, that's when Tony Collette is over. Right. What's this one about? Oh, it's about this woman who's incredibly... Well, she's a hostess, and she's incredibly confident, and she's going to give a party. And maybe because she's confident, everyone thinks she's fine. But she isn't. Like, that's something, like, makes Tony turn and, like, stop having that conversation. Like, there are oh, several points where she just she hears totally what recoils. she says and just, like, turns and thinks about something else and turns and talks about uh, yeah. I don't remember what it is after they're sitting on the table. Well, she talks about the fact that. that she's going to see the doctor. Yeah, and she opens up that, yeah, she has a growth in her uterus. Uterus. There was a reason I couldn't conceive. Oh, you're lucky, Laura. I don't think you can call yourself a woman until you're a mother. I love that narrative of opening everybody up and showing that we all have a flaw inside of us. I think that's like the perfect thing that evens me out more than showing that uh, star Lord is perfect and can't, you know, make a bad decision. He will always go the right way, but that we have an internal flaw and that we're all subject to that and that it doesn't change who we are. It's something that we embrace and that we need to love each other for. And this maybe goes off of my point here, but Virginia Woolf's sister says another, I, I feel like I'm just coming back to cool line lines that people say, There are so many. but her sister says uh, she's so lucky. She's living two lives, one in reality and one in her book mm-hmm. uh, where one can be who she is flawed with whatever mental things she has going on and still be able to choose to make a perfect character or to make a, a character that's a reflection of her, make a cake that's a reflection of her, yeah. make, make a party that's a reflection of her. I love that line too. And I think that it also speaks to Virginia Woolf as an artist. Um, mm. She's very excited to see her sister mm. and that her, that she's coming to visit. But while she's there, she's writing the book in her head. Mm. And I think that that's something that probably a lot of artists that they do naturally that now we don't see is really that strange because creation happens all the time simultaneously in any social setting mm-hmm. uh, in, in the artist's mind. And so they're witnessing that in real time. And that, that probably feels like psychosis to somebody who, 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 where everything has to be so proper. And there's like right. that, there's the, an, an awesome opposite into that. Cause you just said creation happens in any time. And then there's the scene with the dead bird yeah, where they want to put the bird to rest. And then all of a sudden, just everybody forgets about it. 
and just playing around the boys. Yeah, and and Virginia sits and she lays down next to the bird with the her, daughter. Yeah, with the daughter and then the the sister comes back up and is like, "All right, um is the funeral complete now? All right, let's go. Let's yeah. do something else." Shakes my small. Yes. Yes, that's one of the things that happens. We look smaller. But very peaceful. She's taking the time to to potentially find the beauty in the moment. Mm-hmm. And so is the little girl who's concerned about the bird dying. Right. So they have a wonderful little moment where she really shows her humanity. And I think that that's something that is probably inherent in artists or people that just things burn a little brighter for is like you can see the beauty in smaller moments, whereas other people have a tendency of overlooking them. Because they're they're distracted by what it is to be, you know, considered to be a normal person or just yeah. uh, right. Especially in the twenties when everyone is so proper, like things just aren't discussed, things aren't out in the open. So yeah, obviously the big theme right off the gate, out of the gate, right off the bat, out of right out of the gate. <laughs> big theme is death. Um, the yeah. movie starts with Virginia Woolf's suicide. I begin to hear voices and can't concentrate. So I'm doing what seems to be the best thing to do. I thought that that maybe was something that should come at the end. But when you start off with it, it sort of changes how we view these characters and our expectations for what potentially will happen. You know, that put me on a high alert to be watching for this. There's a line, I think, early in there that I think it's Virginia Woolf talking about how her main character will die. And uh, she says she'll commit suicide over something that doesn't seem to matter. Yeah. And so I kept trying to like think of like, oh, what's this trivial thing that's going to like send her overboard and make her commit suicide? Which, so which thought, character, Virginia Woolf or someone any, else? Any of them. I think yeah. I was just looking for anything because where I remember it coming was Laura. And when she started making a cake, I was like, oh, here it comes. She's going right. to mess up the cake and this is going to send it overboard. But I mean, to bring it back, I liked how the... Death starting this film kind of puts you in that headspace to know that that's always something that's going to be looming. Speaking of Virginia and Laura, one of my favorite moments in the film is when Laura is attempting suicide and she's on the hotel bed and the water, the like river or lake water starts to overtake her as it does with Virginia, since that is how she um, ended her life. But the water starts to fill the the hotel room. room. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and Virginia is riding and she says, but she won't do it. You know, she said Mm -hmm. she had planned on have, I forget. She said it in a much better way, but she, she had planned on having her main character die and then she changed her mind. And so, yeah. Um, Nicole Kidman says this one line and then Julianne Moore, you know, wakes up gasping for breath and she's she's going to live. Right. That's one of my favorite visually and story wise. This just makes me think about how connected you can be. I mean, outside of these three women thinking about how your personal life can be connected to a text that you experience and would Laura have the same experience had she not read Mrs. Dalloway and had she not read about a person who had the same experience. Would she still live a life that feels like a lie if that tinkling of information had not been dangled in front of her face? Like I'd like to think not. So I'm conflicted conflicted by her choice. Mm-hmm. Right. I think death is a broader metaphor 
in this entire movie because it's not just physical death. It's escape. Yeah, it's exactly what it is. There's the physical death, which we which we see Virginia Woolf and then with Richard at the end when he commits suicide. And then there's sort of this death to self because uh, Laura's character at the end does say the reason why she chose to leave her family after deciding not to commit suicide was because she feel like she was living the death. Right. And that the, even though it was a hard decision to leave her family, she decided to walk away from it and chose life to, to not live this lie, mm-hmm. which was completely destroying her. Yeah. And then again, like Richard, he's living death as well, but just because he has a terminal illness and then he decides to take his own life to take control on his own that, terms. Right? Yeah. And, um, you know, just as he tells Clarissa, you're, you're basically living for me, you know, you're, you know, or I guess as much as Clarissa feels like she's living for Richard, her life is, you know, very centered around Richard. Richard, you know, tells her, I'm still here for you. I'm hanging on to life for you because I feel like, you yeah. know, that's what you want, but I'm, I'm not going to do it anymore. A lot of the things that he says probably sting Clarissa, mm-hmm. but they're the, they're the most honest things that anyone says in the movie. I mean, that kind of leads us into dish, dish. I don't know why this word is so hard for me. Disillusionment. So I think uh, Meryl Streep actually has a line saying, um, you know, not only does she call her life trivial and the things she's doing during the movie trivial, but she has a line about back when she was young, she had so many hopes and had so much happiness but thought there was more to come, right? She she didn't realize in the moment that that was happiness. She didn't stop and I actually know. wrote that quote down too. Really? Because it was great. What is what is the exact quote? You were young once, yearning for the past, the sense of possibility, the beginning of happiness, chasing what has happened and thinking it could never happen again. That's it. Yeah. Because everything that she admires in other people, well, that we that we meet on her journey with Lewis, he got out or he got away from what I guess was a toxic relationship with Richard. Mm-hmm. And then when she meets the older Laura, who appears at the end of the movie, mm-hmm. um, which this whole time we think she's dead. When right, she appears at the know. end of the movie, we, we realize that she left her family. And this is sort of probably what is the catalyst for Richard's problems. Right. Uh, and she owns that. But she tells the story about how she had to leave. And I think Clarissa, Meryl Streep's character, that's what she's struggling with herself. So we've maybe touched on this a little bit, but to me, I realized maybe halfway through the movie that one of the big themes is loving someone with an illness, what it means to love someone with an illness, particularly a mental illness. Yeah. You know, we see these secondary characters, Leonard Wolf, you know, trying to love his wife. We see little Richie, um, little Richie. <laughs> <laughs> we see Richie as a young boy, um, trying to love his mom. And yeah. we see Clarissa actually trying to love older Richard. And that really struck me because I, I have been, you know, very, very close to people in my life whom I love who do have mental illness or who have had mental illness. And I think it's hard even in 2001, but especially in the twenties or the fifties to have the resources to, um, be equipped to care for someone with some kind of illness. And, you know, Leonard just clearly not equipped, you know, doing what he thinks is best, you know, hoping and wishing and hoping that living in Richmond rather than London will keep her alive and hoping that these doctors will keep her alive. Yeah. But I do like that he's trying and you can, you can tell that he has a, a profound love for her. 
especially in the train station. Scene. Absolutely. Yeah. It's my favorite scene of the whole movie. And I think it's just because Nicole Kidman's character comes alive. Virginia Woolf kind of comes alive in that moment and kind of just lays out the stakes. Yeah. And then he takes a moment to wrestle with it and he, cause she wants to go back to London. Right. He's not just trying to contain her because that's what husbands did. Right. Which also, sorry, I'm talking a lot, but that makes her letter to him make sense to me because her letter is extremely touching about their love. And up until that point, kind of to see him as a, as a controlling sort of uh, almost a, I want to say warden. I can't think of a better word. Yeah. He's not cruel, but he is, you know, definitely. Why'd you leave? You left the house. Where are you going? Why didn't you have Mm -hmm. breakfast? Yeah. I wish I could go for a walk in the middle of the day, like all that stuff. Yeah. And that does bring up an interesting point that each of these stories happens in one day. Yeah. You know, and we're, we're seeing just a tiny little window into these women's lives and, you know, they lived so much life. Even Virginia lived to 59, you know, she didn't die young. I like this bullet point because I think it systematically goes through all the different types of people Mm -hmm. that you could have in your life that would deal with you. And I think Leonard Wants to help, but like you said, he's not equipped. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sally, who is Clarissa's girlfriend, yes. who we don't get to see much, unfortunately. Um, no, and I love Alice and Janie. So she's much. fantastic, mm-hmm. but you can definitely tell that she's probably a rock for Clarissa. Right. She doesn't have much to say, but she's there, picking up the pieces, mm-hmm. you know, making sure stuff is happening. She's in and out, even though she has less to say. She her actions say more than words right. ever could. Right. And then you have Dan. John C. Riley's character, mm-hmm. who is it's very unfortunate character. He's completely oblivious. Oh my god, so <laughs> stupid. I, I just we're so happy. Yeah, he. I mean, I just think that he's kind of the living embodiment of what people's definition of happiness in the fifties was, right? And the disconnect that it actually had with people actually having a real relationship with somebody. Mm-hmm. I think he represents sort of the problem, right? But not to his own devices. Like he's not not outwardly trying to hold her down. No, he's just doing the 50s thing. It's right. just the antiseptic worldview that is not wrong. It's just that everybody does it. and He thinks his idea of happiness is the box that they live in. I think Maddie talked about that yesterday. When when we kind of see John C. Riley's or Dan's sort of oblivious nature to his wife's um, needs, he's telling the story about how when he was in the war, he wanted nothing to make her happy, but to make her happy was to give her a house and put her in that house and put her in a box. He literally says put her in that house, doesn't he? I, something like that, yeah. And then that shot is just, the ending shot in that scene is just pulling back and showing the archways to the kitchen. and It's just a box. Yeah. I loved that. Because she's trapped. Right. Just like everyone else in this movie, to a certain degree, is trapped mm-hmm. um, in a cage, whether either by their own design or by one forced upon them. You know, we can kind of see the absolute devastating effect that Laura leaving him had on Richie, you know, because when he's a young child, we see how much he loves her. Yeah. You know, there's a heartbreaking scene where she's driving away and, you know, you don't know how much he really feels is going on if he's just, you know, having some separation anxiety or if he as a young child knows that something's up. I think that's how it's played in the movie. Yeah. He knows something is up. He's. Very attentive. He's perceptive, and yeah. he's seen her. He's seen that kiss, kiss. this woman. Yes, and um, just like the little girl saw, uh, Virginia Woolf kisses kiss her, her mom, sis- her sister. Um, sister, kiss her sister. Yeah, and then um, 
when we meet older Laura Brown at the end, Meryl Streep's character's daughter, I just keep calling her Meryl Streep, Clarissa's daughter, Julia, yeah. um, says, oh, that's the monster. So we know that Richie has, Richard has talked about his mom and not in a positive way. That had to have an, a traumatic effect on him and probably something that he carried in. And I think that that also, since Miss Dalloway was the book that his mother, who at the time he idolized, was reading. Mm-hmm. That, that idolization was stripped from him. Right. So he had to project it onto somebody else. But yeah, right before Richard takes his life, we see him, you know, staring at a photo as, of his mother. And it, it makes me think that his thought in that moment is, you know, he knows that she had to choose that in order to live as much as it, you know, wrecked his life. And he's going to choose this hard thing in order to, you know, he says, Clarissa walks into him, you know, ripping down the boards off the, windows and And he's tearing up his apartment we need to let in some light yeah and i think that's what he's doing by um taking his life he's taking it on his own terms he's not going to be in pain anymore he's going to free the people that he loves because he sees himself as a burden yeah and i think that really um echoes his mom's choice i'm afraid i can't make it to the party clarissa the party doesn't matter you've been so good to me mrs dalloway I love you. I think whatever he was planning on doing, I don't think he planned on doing it in front of her. Yeah. I think through circumstance, that's just what happened. But I don't like that it happened that way because of how damaging that could be to someone who you say you love. Yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah, just absolute trauma. And this is kind of where I want to tread really lightly because this is a really a serious topic and I want to make sure that I'm sympathetic and empathetic to people who experience these things, but it is something that I wonder, even when Virginia Woolf takes her own life, her letter you know, is talking about how great their love was, mm-hmm. but it wasn't enough. Right. Richard takes his wife, his, sorry, takes his life in front of Clarissa, which, and that goes back to the reverberations, the, the mm-hmm. wake that you leave behind you. Like these things, these things have effects on those that you leave behind. And me personally, that would be something I would, consider that would in my own life be greater than the the desire the action to end my life Mm. yeah i mean this is a hard subject to talk about because you want to treat it you know with respect i am not equipped i know how i feel about it i think people who do make this choice for themselves or who do have suicidal ideations they know you know they know that it's going to well, I don't want to say that because I think sometimes people really do. I think both Virginia and Richard said, you know, in their last moments, you know, I'm holding you back. Your life will be better without me, essentially. Yeah. And, you know, when you, when you are someone who has suicidal ideations, I think that truly is something that you believe. Yeah. Despite how happened. hard this is going to be in this moment, potentially once we're through this, it'll be better. Right. Yeah, you'll be better off without me. I I wondered if that countered this narrow-minded idea that suicide is selfish. Mm. That's something that, at least growing up in the church, that was something that was very frequently pushed, is that it's a very selfish act. I think if you oversimplify it, perhaps. Mm -hmm. And I think that's coming from a place of totally not understanding yeah. You know, what that person is actually going through when they're having those thoughts, when they're making that choice. I I, am, I imagine that that choice is not arrived at easily. No, and I think, you know, when a person is in that place, 
a lot of times they see it as selfless again, because they're, you know, they know that it'll cause some trauma, but they really believe that it, it's the best choice for everyone. And does the hours say that that's true? Does it say that their life when it ends, is that connotating that their life is better and that they have found a life because of a death? I think it's a really good question. Yeah. I personally don't think that the, the hours does take a stance. Mm. I don't think the movie does. Okay. And I don't think, cause I don't think that the, the movie is glorifying it. Or mm-hmm. I don't think it's demonizing it. Yeah. Yeah. It just is. It just is. I could be wrong. Not find peace by avoiding life, Leonard. She's going to live life the way she wants to live it. And if that means she has a mental breakdown, that means she has a mental breakdown. But she's being mm-hmm. true to who she is. And she's. This was something that we did to try to fix you, which I think right. Richard, or sorry, Leonard. Leonard says. Was kind of his. All he knew to do was like, yeah. he was a very regimented person. All he knew is like, if there's a problem, I'm going to fix it. And I, and I can kind of relate to that. Mm hmm. A lot. Yeah. In my life, like in with my relationship with my wife and like friends, like if something's broken, we have to fix it. Like yeah. it's just, just feels simple to me in that sense. But like there's, it doesn't really help like the deeper issues. So yeah, I know that for sure. We have here this film and this story revolving around three women. And it's a story told by men, written by a man and directed by a man. And I just wanted to touch on that. Yeah. Um, I want to talk about what makes this a female story and what makes it universal. What makes it a story that's able to be told by men? So I think I think this is a personal story. I think it's a uni- I think it is more of a universal story. I don't think you could make the characters men. I don't think the male experience in the fifties would be the same as it was for the women by any stretch or the twenties. Yeah, I mean, definitely um, the queer themes that the movie deals with and that the 1920s and 1950s characters deal with, I mean, there definitely would have still been some stigma. Absolutely. But, you know, as far as having to be the perfect housewife, you know, that was very female experience. You know, there's the whole thing that we haven't talked about with Virginia and her cooks and um, how they just absolutely despise her and she's afraid of them because she's not a strong, like, matriarchal... Right, because she's not stepping up into her... uh, Not status, but... Um, Yes, her place. It's her job to tell us what to do. She's not telling us what to do, so therefore she's doing it wrong. Right. And going back to that idea of what is what is expected of you versus you know what's normal, what's what's what does everybody do? I think what John says is you can't recast this with men and it still have the same play. Because I I think immediately that like the female experience is something that no man can have a true throw a line into because so did write like the female experience well right he did yeah I, I i do agree which was um, highly informed it's highly informed by virginia wolf's work it's I mean, right uh, right but I, I think you know but that perspective is as much him him seeing virginia wolf write about mrs dalloway or seeing these these characters unfold in the way that they are you know they all have their dedication whatever but that's that's not any different from me seeing what my mother goes through or what my girlfriend goes through. Like I can have an eye to that and I can see how it affects people. And I can see how though I'm a man, I know what I get scared of when I think about my family who are close to me. You don't have to be a woman to see 
injustice or excuse me to see what women go through yeah yeah to have empathy yeah you need to just you you need to care for somebody else and to empathize and to put yourself in somebody else's shoes and not just be uh self-absorbed about it and understand that people go through things that you don't go through and that's their story yeah yeah i'm not always thrilled about a female story being told by men but I think this is one of the instances in which it actually, um, you know, they do a good job. Yeah, it feels, I mean, it feels very true. Mm-hmm. I kind of uh, wonder if Richard represents the author a little bit. I, I feel the same way, but I think it's just because there's, a, it's not a direct adaptation of Mrs. Dalloway. It's his spin on it. It's mm-hmm. his spin on an adaptation. So it's like, it, it does feel a little bit more personal. Can I ask, maybe not just for me personally, but just to kind of talk about what does the hours mean? Oh, you're not, you're like asking a a leading question. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, (laughs) that was to engage conversation. Gotcha. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, so it's first said by Richard when Cloris is trying to convince him to come to the party and he's like, great, the party will happen. But then the, there's the hours after the party and it's like, you know, we're working all day for this big thing. And then after it, I have to come home. I have to keep living this life. And then Virginia Woolf says it at the end of the film. You know, she says, always the years between us. And this is in her real letter. Always the years between us. Always the years. Always the love. Always the hours. Yeah. I think it's an elegant way of saying living. Yeah. Which everyone is forced to do until they don't. Mm -hmm. So whether you perceive that as a blessing or a curse, that's your story. Good answers. I know that was just me <laughs> wanting to ask that question because it's the last thing in the very corner of my notes. So <laughs> quick trivia. Um, Nicole Kidman loved wearing her prosthetic nose. Um, apparently, apparently she would wear it in private too. And she would wear it to evade paparazzi because um, this was filmed around the time of her divorce from Tom Cruise. So oh. if uh, at any point in 2001, you were walking the streets of wherever it filmed and you thought you saw Squidward England <laughs> was actually Nicole, Nicole Kidman. Kidman. I, I can't blame her for one to avoid all that. No, I'm sure it was fun. No, this is interesting. So originally they had cast an elderly actress to play old Laura. They did not originally intend that to be Julianne Moore, but the director hated it so much for some reason. I don't, I don't know why, but he hated it. And so about a year after Julianne Moore had wrapped, they called her back to play oh, okay. um, older Laura. She had aged that much in a year? Yeah, crazy. <laughs> <laughs> she must have been really stressed. She was so pregnant. Method. She was actually pregnant uh, filming that that last Laura scene. Yeah, um, I Julianne mean, the makeup, the makeup wasn't stellar, but I did appreciate it being that. her. Here's the thing. The whole time I was watching Julianne Moore in old age makeup, it reminded me so much of... Winona Ryder in Edward Scissorhands. And oh, yeah. No, that's, that is the makeup. worst old age makeup, though. So, you can't take yes. someone who's 18 and make them 87. But they both had the same, like, this is my voice, but I'm yeah. very quiet. And then they just laid in, it was just a close-up shot, and it just <laughs> laid on a close-up shot, so you get to take in, in HD, so bad. all the makeup. <laughs> but I still liked it better than... Uh, it potentially being another act. Yes. I think it would, uh, you know, would it have lost some of its impact? Yeah. If it was a different actor. Yeah. Um, maybe. 
Um, uh, fun fact, Meryl Streep received 17 award nominations. Oh my gosh. Julianne Moore received 18. Nicole Kidman received 25. Jeez. And she won eight of them, including the best actress, uh, Academy Award, yeah. Academy Award. And actually, you know, they should have technically submitted her as, uh, supporting, supporting because she actually has the least amount of screen time out of all three women. Yeah. That's really weird because it's Meryl Streep's movie. Yeah, for sure. Meryl Streep and Julianne Moore uh, were supporting, and I think neither of them won. And then Nicole Kinman, yeah, won for Best Actress. They were sure nominated a lot. Good grief. Yes. They actually, all three women, shared the Silver Berlin Bear Award for Best Actress, the only time people have shared um, that award. Their performances were amazing. I mean, Meryl Streep is always amazing, so it's kind of like, yeah, she was Meryl. Yeah, but I mean, (laughs) and she was amazing, but Nicole Kidman... Absolutely fantastic. And yeah. I think this is my favorite Julianne Moore performance. She's so great. Y'all want to take a quiz? Oh, is it quiz time? Yeah, unless you just want to. You know what? I, I, I do have one more trivia bit that oh, I yeah, think is me. a little timely. <gasps> Harvey Weinstein. Yes, I read this. Yes. He hated Julia, Robert, Julia Roberts. The whole movie that I watch. <laughs> Nicole Kidman's nose. He also hated the Philip Glass score, which means he has no taste. Um, because that Philip Glass score was freaking amazing. That's all I'm going to say about that. I like to, I like to, um, well, I don't like to imagine, but I imagine Harvey's, uh, argument was, she's not pretty anymore. That's not his voice. <laughs> I don't know what his voice sounds like. She's not pretty anymore. You made her ugly. Take it off. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So I have always gone first. Yeah. I think Holden needs to go first. I'm going to go take a powder. Okay. And, uh, you have. Fun with the quiz. Good All luck. Right. You ready, Holden? Sure. How do you think you're going to do? Terribly. Okay. Let's see. Question number one. Put your notes away. That's what I was doing. Okay. Question number one. In what general time period does each story take place? In what general time period? If you, I, I worded it that way, so if you don't know the exact year, you're okay. In the 20th century. No, each one. Three answers. 1941, 1951, 2001. Okay. I was actually wrong. There are technically four different And 1923. There you go. Good job. What flower does Meryl Streep's character, Clarissa, say she wants buckets of at her party? Uh, hydrangeas. Final answer? Yeah, I don't know. No. Um, but she, she does mention hydrangeas, so... That was a little bit of a hard one. Oh, I know the answer. What is it? Roses. You're correct. Uh, We'll see how John does, and then we'll decide whether or not to give you that point. Uh, What animal dies in Virginia Woolf's garden? The bird? Yeah. For what did Richard win an award? Uh, Poetry. Correct. Uh, Final question. In what city are Laura and her family living? Springfield. (laughs) Which one? There's like a ton of Springfield. I don't know. No, it's not Springfield. I don't know. Okay, so how many questions was that? One, two, three. You got three out of five. Okay. Um, I think that's a passing grade, right? Sure. Okay. If you want to think about it that way. <laughs> All right, and I'm back. How do you think you're going to do? I hope I do well. I'm discovering that I'm, I don't quiz well. <laughs> I have yet to win one. Holden would say the same thing about himself, though. Y'all gotta have more confidence. I well, think. I mean, just but, tell someone that. But see, his is unfounded because he actually won one. Mine is based on statistics. 
Okay, well, it's not like we've done 20 and you haven't won any. Mm -hmm. All right, you ready? Okay. Testing you. Okay. Be before we start, and I'm not just trying to curry favor with you, but I'm I'm really grateful that you picked this movie. It was I thought it was really fantastic. Oh, um, I enjoyed watching it immeasurably. I think it was really a fantastic movie. I thought it was forgettable. Here's fifty dollars. Uh, Dang! I'm gonna grease. I'm gonna grease it. I surely thought <laughs> Under the Silver Lake was gonna get me fifty. Oh god! I surely thought. <laughs> I thought that movie just gives people exhales. No, it wasn't. It wasn't. It wasn't a reward for a good movie. It was. Uh, it was a bribe. Oh, oh, I can't believe I didn't see that. I can't either. Take your freaking quiz. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, number okay. one. Number one. In what time period or what exact year does each story take place? Four answers. Four answers? Oh, it's just three. Mm, three or four, depending on how you look at it. Okay, well, uh, there's 21, 51, 2001. Um, you're, you're close. Oh, I mean, gosh. you got 20s, um, 51, 2001. There's a fourth? Mm-hmm, mm. think about it, think about it. Okay. Do, 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 do. Well, there's Virginia Woolf stories in 21. Mm, you're not wrong. There's a there's a secondary year for her. Mm-hmm. Mm. And and <laughs> in 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 the 20s, she's writing her book. Would it be 25 when the book came out? No. I I don't know. John, you do know. You do know. You. Do. I thought it was just three years. Oh, I mean, yeah. I'll give it to you. Did you get it? Yeah. Oh my gosh. Okay, so it's 1923, 1941, 1951, 2001. I don't know. I don't know. What do you mean you don't know? <laughs> Part of the movie is in 1941. We all watched the same movie. <laughs> okay, well, clearly we're off to a good start. <laughs> I, I would say that's one of the easier questions, too. Oh, shit. Um, maybe not. Maybe not. Okay, okay. Um, number two. Number two. What flower does Meryl Streep's character say she wants buckets of at her party? Roses? Yes. <laughs> you got it right. She doesn't faster like than I do. she doesn't like lilies. Yes, yeah, she says no to lilies and then she, she says, says two morbid. Hydrangeas, which was Holden's first answer. And roses. Then she says buckets and buckets, buckets of, of roses. roses. Yeah. I said it was my final answer and then who wants to be a millionaire? You don't get a do-over when you're like, "Oh, Regis, you didn't tell me it, but I know the right answer now." I'm just This is not I'm, who wants to be a millionaire. Just trying to be fair. I wish. Don't know. No cash prize. Okay. We'll see. We'll see. We'll see. I wouldn't win it. We'll see if we need a tiebreaker. We'll okay. See. Okay. Number three. What animal dies in Virginia Wolf's garden? It was a bird. A little bird. A little bird. Uh, number four. For what did Richard win an award? Uh, for poetry, the Carruthers. Yes. Um, number five. Final question. In what city are Laura and her family living? Uh, they're in Los Angeles, California. They are. Shit. They are. Did I win? <laughs> You won. <laughs> I'm so happy. Oh, I did it. I did uh, it. Even Holden though did not get I, Los Angeles. I guess we could say the... Wait, hold on. Did I, I saw the palm trees and I said Springfield. <laughs> hold on. Let me ask you this. Truth. He did truth. not throw no, it. He I did not throw, throw it. it. No, 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 no. Okay. <laughs> we like, like that we both went there. <laughs> <laughs> Technically, you could say the first question is being called into question. Well... So did he get all five? No. What did you get? He didn't get Los Angeles and he technically didn't get roses. Okay. So even though we can say that the first question is a, is, is debatable, you still won. I still won. You yeah. got like four and three so quarters even if out I of got, five. Even if I got the first 
question wrong, you still win. I still win. Yeah. You got Los Angeles. And that is all that matters to me. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. It's a very valid win. Um, so my bonus oh. question was. Uh, hold on, hold on. I just want to bask okay, in the bask. glory of. Oh, so it feels good. It feels real good. I went to Burger King and I got you a little crown. It's Friday and I couldn't think of a better way to end the week than to winning this quiz and just being able to hold it over Holden for at least another week. (laughs) I'm honestly happy because I want to watch some John movies too because Star Trek was great. It was great, wasn't it, Maddie? (laughs) I told, I mean, I told John that I want to watch all of those Star Trek movies now. I mean, in honesty. All of them? Yeah. I want to watch one through the final frontier. Six. Easy there, bud. <laughs> I get to pick a little. Okay, so my pick yes. for next week. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I'm going to go with the Karate Kid. Oh. oh, Maddie, I don't feel like you're excited for Karate Kid. Um, uh, um, would I have ever watched it on my own, of my own volition? Probably not, but I'm open to it. My expectations are... Um, just super, super cheesy eye rolling material. <laughs> that doesn't tell us what you think it's about. Well, it's about a kid who learns to do karate. And he has a what do you call it? He has a sensei. Does okay. he have a sensei? He does. Who wears the, the rising sun flag on his head? I feel like that's the time that we're in. Okay. And tears are shed after the first fight because he loses. Well, I guess we'll find out next I, week. i confirm that in viewing. Episode five, Karate Frickin' Kid. Oh. Get, strap in. What's the, what's the song? Um, I am the tiger. That's Rocky. All right, well, I'm excited for y'all to watch it because it's my favorite movie, and it's the greatest movie ever made. I'm really excited we're making it to episode five. I, I'm I'm. <laughs> No, I'm not saying that. Oh, I can't believe we've survived this long. We're paddling out on a rubber dinghy and we're waiting for it to not deflate. No, I've, I'm excited that we're. You know, this feels like a we, like a stretch. Yeah, we're, like no, a, we're moving up. Good. We're we're meeting in the same room. We've got a table full of amazing <laughs> gear. Yeah, it looks like John's about to do a DJ set. That's right. Yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm happy. Oh, I didn't even notice your little Star Trek mug. John so. has a Star Trek mug, everybody. Ah. It's a very, very large, largest mug maybe that I've ever seen. Thank you for coming over to my house to record this podcast. Thank and you for hosting Thank us. you for and losing the quiz, Holden. Thank you for losing the quiz, Holding, Holding. Mm-hmm. That's, Holden, that, that's and, also valid. And letting me choose Karate Kid, which I'm excited for Maddie to see. We and didn't have a choice. We did not let you. Thank you for choosing right. Karate Kid. I finally chose to engage my big, powerful brain and win a fucking quiz. Uh, <laughs> M- M- Maddie, what do, what do we say when someone has uh, said thank you? What do we? You're welcome. Okay. Thank you for saying that. You're welcome. You also need to figure out. We need to figure out how Sign to off. begin and end these stupid. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've been listening to Unseen Supreme, the not essential movie podcast with uh, Maddie. Yeah. Oh, and me and me, Holden. Hi, that's me, my, I, me, my, and we are <laughs> under the Silver Lake. We'll see you next time. <laughs>
right, it's that time, everybody. I am back to announce our winners of the Cypher Decoding Puzzle Scavenger Hunt Game Time. Uh, again, I want to thank all of our participants for playing. We got some pretty interesting entries, I'll have to say, but these winners that we have today were quick solvers. So, drumroll. Our first winner is Mark Calhoun. Ab absolutely no relation at all to um, Maddie Calhoun. Just wanted to make that clear. Um, our second winner is Jason Collins. And again, absolutely no relation to our John Collins. Just, you know, that no trickery is happening here. And our third winner of the Cypher Puzzle is my father, Greg Dawson. Just kidding. Uh, but <laughs> those are our winners, guys. Um, a big thank you to uh, all three of y'all for playing and Dang, y'all were y'all were pretty fast on the draw here. Uh, so, you three are winning our awesome uh, 15 ounce unseen supreme coffee mugs, and y'all, I'm sipping from mine right now, and I can't tell you how cool, or, or rather, how hot <laughs> these are. I can't wait for you to get one. So, um, anyway, those are our winners, and uh, again, a big thanks to everyone for staying tuned and playing, and uh, hopefully we could do more of these in the future. Uh, we thought this was really fun. So, um, yeah, thanks again.